Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm Anne Quinter Wolf, and a very happy just after Christmas to you. I hope you got everything that you wished for, uh, whether that be in material terms or food-wise, or in terms of the company that you kept and maybe are still keeping, even if that means splendid isolation. I hope that you got the R&R that you needed and are continuing to do so. And the fact that you've hit play on a podcast suggests to me that it's time to be entertained. So let's do that for you. Um, what we're going to be doing today is looking back over 2015 at some of my favourite moments from the show. A uh, quick round of thank yous to finish off the year, really, to everybody who's appeared on the show everybody at londonist who's helped to get the show up and out there thank you for lending us your ears and two special thank yous one to somebody i always thank at the end of every show that is bernie without whom this show simply wouldn't be happening and uh, another great thank you to our sponsor audible who have looked after us Uh, they've been our sponsor on a number of previous episodes and they are again this christmas and we're going to be talking star wars with them in just a moment and if you haven't tried audible this is kind of the right time of year to do it if you're on a long car trip to see the relatives or you've got your arms plunged elbow deep into washing up an audiobook uh, written by an excellent author and uh, quite often read by them as well or read by some of the cream of acting talent is exactly what you need. If a Star Wars fan you are, the force is strong with Audible, which has more audiobooks than you can shake a Tusken Raider Gaddafi stick at. And so they are sponsoring this episode. From novels explaining Obi-Wan Kenobi's backstory on Tatooine, to tales from the Old Republic, or even six-hour unabridged tellings of the films, there are over a hundred Star Wars-related titles to choose from on Audible, and you can get one for free. Just engage, hyperdrive, and head at light speed to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist for a 30-day free trial and one free title. For example, hear Mark Hamill and Anthony Daniels narrate a radio adaptation of Star Wars or listen to journalist Chris Taylor's story of how the series became one of the most successful franchises in the world. And with that going on in your ears, you'll have your hands free to fend off foes from the dark side. Membership renews automatically at £7.99 a month after your free trial, unless cancelled. Terms apply. Right, let's get cracking. We're off to Westminster for our first look back. And my guest on that occasion, right at the beginning of the year, was Caroline Shenton. She's an archivist and historian, an all-round good egg, and was talking uh, to us about the day that Parliament burnt down. Tally sticks are a, a form of receipt for government income in the Middle Ages. So they're a stick about six inches long, um, which are shaped on four sides, and they have notches carved in them by officials in the Exchequer, which is the finance department of the medieval and early modern 
uh, nation and um, the notches indicate the amount of money paid in um, by sheriffs who've gone off to collect taxes in the counties and they come to Westminster twice a year, once at Easter and once at Michaelmas and they hand over their bag of money. They get a tally stick and what they get is actually half the tally stick because the tally stick is um, carved and then the tally cutter splits it in half vertically. So the sheriff gets one half with the notches on and the other half is kept at Westminster at the Exchequer. Um, And what it means is that it's not possible for anybody to claim that the sum of money that's been paid in was wrong because all you have to do is to match up the two halves of the tally stick to show that the sum of money was correct because the notches themselves indicate how much money was paid in. So there's a a little hole for a halfpenny, a tiny little slice for a penny, a bigger slice for a shilling, for a pound, £10, £100, £1,000 and so on. Um, It's actually a really efficient way of... Uh, accounting for income in a pre-literate society because uh, if people can't read they can't read bills or receipts but they can certainly um, count the number of notches on a stick and see that things match up and we and we get lots of vocabulary today from this amazing process that carried on until the 18th century Um, one half of the tally sticks called the foil the other half's called the counterfoil. So anybody who's used to doing sort of tombola tickets or raffle tickets will know what a counterfoil is. Um, and another word for the counterfoil is the stock, as in stocks and shares. And even the word exchequer, the government department in charge of all the money, gives us the word check. So this amazing system carried on until um, 1826, in actual fact, even though it had been abolished earlier, uh, a few years earlier. And uh, there was a pile of leftover tally sticks at Westminster, just around the corner from here, just outside the doors of Westminster Hall at the end there. Off to the right, there was a, a building which housed the Exchequer and there were two, uh, two rooms full of tally sticks that needed to be disposed of because they were no longer needed. And the decision was made, rather than burning them in a bonfire outside uh, in the open air, which was the original plan, it was decided because that would cause too much annoyance to the neighbours it was thought they eventually <laughs> <laughs> the clerk of works did something made a decision uh, to uh, to burn them somewhere else which in the end caused even more annoyance to the neighbours and he decided that it would be better to burn them in the underfloor heating furnaces of the house of lords chamber well that doesn't seem like an entirely stupid idea well it it was a it was a fairly stupid idea oh, okay. I, think. I, th- I think it's fair to say it was a fairly stupid idea because the furnaces were meant for coal rather than wood and the laborers who were tasked with doing this work um, shoved on the sticks much too quickly oh yes everybody knows you don't put wood pellets on a coal burning stove well there you go um, and uh, so the laborers were piling on the sticks over many hours during during the course of the day and that caused a chimney fire um, and uh, then the whole place um, went up really quite quickly and when we say the whole place well uh, it started it started in the lord's chamber um, and uh, it spread incredibly quickly there was a there was a fireball that lit up the sky uh, at about half past six um, in the afternoon um, and uh, what's happened there uh, and you can tell from eyewitness accounts is something called a flashover and I learned a lot about firefighting theory during writing the book and a flashover is when the gases from a fire in an enclosed space rise to the ceiling then they start to fall and they heat up everything the furniture and the fittings and so on and the 
the curtains uh, in that space and then they explode and um, create a great big rolling ball of flame and that's very clear from the newspaper accounts this is what happens in the early evening of the 16th of October and it lights up the London skyline and then huge crowds immediately flock to Westminster to see what's going on. Yes what was the general reception of this spectacle? Well it's interesting because um, in the past very little was, has been written about the fire and I think people in the past assumed that the crowd stood around cheering and clapping um, because the Houses of Parliament were burning down. But it's, it's clear from quite a lot of the um, eyewitness accounts and the uh, newspaper accounts that um, they were clapping. One or two people were arrested for cheering. <laughs> but um, they were clapping almost because it had become a cinematic performance. It was so outside their normal experience of light and light shows it was casting fantastic flood lighting onto Westminster Abbey it was reflected all the way down the river it could be seen from um, Windsor 26 miles away to the west because the king and queen could see it from the battlements of the castle Uh, it was so overwhelming that in fact people stood there in awe some were terrified some were frightened some were injured Um, and every time the firemen did something amazingly brave or another great shot of flame or sparks went up into the air they clapped because they had no other sort of response to it really so the story of the cheering and the clapping is a bit more nuanced than people think it was uh, this is 1834. 1834. And what are your sources? What are you? How are you finding out about uh, not just the big stuff, but also the individual reactions of onlookers and so on? Well, it, this became a bit of an obsession for me over over a period of years when I was uh, I was uh, researching the book. So we should say, by way of an interjection, you've got special access to materials that other people might be envious of. Um, well, not special access. Everybody's got access to them. I, I've, I've worked for the Parliamentary Archives for the last 15 years. Um, That's but, pretty special. <laughs> it's pretty special, but we are completely open to the public and anybody can come and see uh, the records that I found. Um, but I, I just became a bit obsessed with finding out about the fire. So whenever I found something in a in somebody's letters or um, in a newspaper account I just stuck it in a drawer and after about eight years I discovered I got enough to write a book so that's how it came about but there are some wonderful diaries um, people writing to relatives in the country about what they've seen Um, newspapers were absolutely full of the fire for weeks and months afterwards and some there are some fantastic um, reports in the papers in the days following the fire of exactly what it was like and um, who was there and and some very famous figures were there including Dickens for example um, who at the time of the fire was not uh, a novelist he was at the beginning of his writing career and he was a parliamentary reporter so he was um, he was sitting in the uh, public or the reporters gallery of um, the commons and the lords each day taking down shorthand of debates and um, he was probably there at the fire and um, we have some um, some really tantalising um, glimpses of, of what the fire might have seemed like to him um, partly from the newspaper reports that went to the Morning Chronicle for which he worked although they're anonymous it's possible that some of the reports there are actually written by Dickens but also I, I think that the fire influenced Dickens much more profoundly in terms of uh, how it appears in his novels um, because we know that in Dickens um, fire plays quite a major part in the denouement of um, of a number of novels so think about Bleak House and think about Great Expectations but perhaps a novel that people are 
somewhat less familiar with is Oliver Twist, um, famous but not perhaps quite so famous as the other two. That was written three years after the fire and um, in it there's this enormous blaze um, at a really odd point in the story. It occurs when Bill Sykes has uh, beaten Nancy to death and he's fleeing London um, and he stops to put out a fire, just like you would do if you were fleeing the forces of law and order. You would, of course, stop to put out a gigantic fire. And it, Dickens obviously feels compelled to, do, to write a description at this point in the story of a gigantic fire in some unnamed, enormous building. And if you compare the description of that fire with uh, other eyewitness descriptions, for example, the eyewitness description by Pugin, the uh, interior designer of the new palace uh, they're very very similar and there's no there's no reason to think that these men compared notes or anything so it's really tantalizing to think that dickens reused what he saw the, the idea of you know his place of work going up in flames before his eyes in his later in his later novels my conspiracy alarm has just gone off uh, the interior designer of the new palace was an eyewitness at the burning down of the old palace <laughs> I don't think you can. You can't blame Pugin for that. <laughs> Pugin was in London because um, a relative had recently died, so he was looking after her estate. And you have to remember that uh, hundreds of thousands of people witnessed this fire, and anybody who was anybody turned up there. Um, and in fact, Charles Barry, the architect of the new palace, was travelling back from Brighton on the night of the fire, and as his stagecoach came over the top of the South Downs, um, uh, he saw the blaze below him and is alleged to have said, what a chance for an architect. So how's that for a conspiracy theory? <laughs> so I think it's all fitting together. I'd never really thought about it before, but I guess the fact is that we spend all of our recording time on Londonist Out Loud during daytime hours. Well, we got a chance to set that imbalance right by talking about London at night with author Matthew Beaumont. Nocturnal history of London and we've just switched on the lights chronologically speaking and uh, well we're about to get literary you're from a literary background we encountered earlier on among the groups of people who were roving around the streets at night I guess they'd be called revelers now and what we I've got a bit of an image of the kind of people who turn up in the stretch limo outside a nightclub and get the VIP entrance past the bouncers and I'm imagining that they're the sort of people who'd be on horseback with their own lights and so forth where these were the, the privileged few is that the case with the literary figures we're going to see uh no not so much the literary figures you're absolutely right about the you know the stretch limo driving figures in the early modern period the you know the roisterers and and revelers as they were called um with their retinues and their flaming torches and their loose morals the and, and they're still called revelers and yet i've never met anybody who admits to reveling <laughs> or what are you what are you doing i'm reveling maybe the odd hooray henry <laughs> uh <laughs> admits to reveling i don't know i don't don't like to to think of them um i'd like to think they were a dead a dying species at the very least yes the the poets the bohemians the and, and the proto-bohemians from the 18th century onwards identified very firmly very committedly with the vagrants who inhabited the city at night and not with the rich in fact the very the very fact that they went on foot some of these figures for the, the grub street authors and the uh, and the urban romanticists of the late 18th century and the early 19th century was itself proof of their sort of anti-aristocratic credentials um, so there's a lot of stuff in the poetry and the prose of the of the early and mid 18th century 
about how important it is to travel on foot. Pedestrianism is is a political gesture, as it later, but in an urban context, as it later became for the Romantics in a in a rural context, more obviously. Um, so they rejected those who travel about by carriage and who look at the world through a. Uh, through a window and who are surrounded by servants what the Grub Street poets relish doing I'm thinking of Samuel Johnson of Richard Savage of Oliver Goldsmith and various others what they like to do is as it were get down and dirty on the streets at night they sympathised with the prostitutes they sympathised with the vagrants and the homeless and they saw them as in, in a sense telling, telling a deeper and a hidden truth about the city that was concealed and repressed beneath the, the great show of enlightenment and civilization and, and consumerism. This reminds me a great deal of some of those books from the 60s, like Up the Junction or Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, those kind of, as, as though we'd just discovered the working class. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yes, yeah, so the Grub Street poets of the 18th century did, not unlike those 60s writers, speak, in a sense, in the authentic voice of the of the working class or, or, or the plebeian population of, of London. That was because they led extremely precarious lives as writers. So the figures like Samuel Johnson, Richard Savage, Oliver Goldsmith, who I've mentioned, were, were close to homeless at times. Uh, they, were, they were really grubbing along. In, in the most mean and servile way, trying to get piecemeal literary work from, from magazines, periodicals, trying to sell their poems practically by, the, by the, the, the inch and foot. And they, they were, you know, virtually, virtually homeless. So even Samuel Johnson, who we think of, of course, as this kind of monumental figure of, of, of English literature and this monumental man of, man of letters, you know, immortalised by Boswell, etc., um, was, in his youth, a decrepit, marginal figure who hung out with this very strange character, Richard Savage, who, who was his mentor for, for several very significant, influential years and who was frequently homeless himself at times when he had no money, who was um, led this very sort of disreputable existence, pretending, it seems, probably pretending uh, to be the, the, the sort of outcast son of an aristocratic family, um, getting into all sorts of scrapes, and by scrapes I mean, you know, he was imprisoned for murder, and uh, generally drinking too much, sleeping on the streets, uh, in, in you know, next to glass houses, glass factory where factories where, where there was warmth to be derived from the bricks. Um, and so, you know, that was the milieu that these, you know, even writers who later became very respectable, like Johnson, inhabited at this time. So they really, you know, they, they were not just substituting for the voice of the plebeians. They were speaking from experience, too, to, to an extent. And, and bringing it back to the night in particular, what sort of things were they revealing to you as you researched your book? Well, there's a, a wonderful piece by, essay really, by Oliver Goldsmith from the from the sort of early to mid 18th century called a, a city night piece and he goes out into the city at about two o'clock in the morning and he describes this really uh, dystopian almost lunar cityscape this really you know sort of rotten desert like 
landscape uh, which is populated by prostitutes and by homeless men and and women and he points very emphatically to the fact that the condition of the homeless people is caused by the rich and he talks about how they refuse to take any responsibility for them how feeble and inadequate philanthropic charitable attempts to solve these sorts of social problems are um, but even more compelling than the politics of that piece really is, is the imaginative flight that it describes he 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 pictures it as in some ways proleptic of the future as in some way anticipating the future it's as if one gets a glimpse of what the collapse of civilization centuries hence might look like if one goes out into the streets at night and sees all its usually in the day busy spaces full of colorful people suddenly emptied and instead of those bustling crowds we see stragglers you know vagrants exiles really from from the city in the day one of the most popular Londonist Out Loud podcasts of 2015 was a tour around Art Deco London with a very well-informed tour guide, the ever-enthusiastic Yannick Pucci. We are currently in Tavistock Square and heading what I think might be north to the junction of Ensley Place. Uh, what are we doing here? Yes, we are going to uh, have a look at uh, this beautiful uh, apartment complex, Tavistock Court, which goes back to 1934-1935, and it has a bit of uh, Art Deco ornamentation on it, especially uh, sort of the intriguing frieze design, which uh, I'll try to describe in a second when we are closer to it. Here we go, Tavistock Court, and we've got a few scenes there that look to be of a religious nature, a stag with its antlers, and, oh yes, there's a crucifix above the stag. So yes, this uh, building was originally uh, done for the uh, church council and they had some offices here on the ground floor and they still exist in uh, different forms but uh, the bulk of the building is a residential property which they would rent out and some of the rooms they go from one room to uh, four rooms and uh, so the the freeze is uh, quite intriguing. So as you sort of uh, justly uh, sort of... um, picked up they do have a few uh, religious connotations here and there so here on the main frieze we have the name and we have the figure of a female saint and a monk on the corner so that's all fairly straightforward and obvious but it is really those two middle freezes which are a bit more enigmatic so uh, you have this soldier and uh, you have the stag in the background and also the golden cross at the top which is emanating uh, light a, a Roman soldier we should specify he looks Roman but uh, you're sort of uh, stealing my point there but uh, I'll allow uh, <laughs> you to do that uh, for the purposes of this uh, interview you know I always joke I'm a bit the sidekick on my own tours and you've just proven it here live on tape there we go but, uh, oh boy, am I in yes, the doghouse? It does look a bit Roman, but this is actually uh, 
a medieval story and it's uh, depicting Saint Hubert who was the uh, Belgian saint and uh, his uh, wife and his baby had died and for a long time he was mourning them but he was also a big hunter so one day he decided to go back into uh, the forest to hunt he came upon a stag and that stag had a golden cross amidst the antlers and out of it came the uh, voice of God saying if you come back onto the righteous path I will help you out he did and later on he was made the bishop of the city of Liège in Belgium but uh, you know in this depiction he does look very much Roman or um, Greek for example so you have those uh, you know how the Art Deco movement would also have picked up some classical elements and uh, so there you have a bit this uh, mishmash of uh, you know medieval story made a bit to look like you know, antiquity. What's the information flow here? Is it that you, and this seems unlikely to me, that you stumbled upon this freeze and then managed to find out that story, or, or did it come the other way around? You heard the story and then came and looked at the place? Uh, no, I, uh, as with most buildings, I will first see them and I will sort of uh, be attracted to them in a different way, and you'll pick up all those details. And well, you uh, make it sound very easy. How did you find out about this, for example? Uh, about this building here. What? Well, first of all walking and having a look so it's always a matter of looking up looking down looking sideways and taking it all in and picking up on the details but uh, then I had a bit of a look online and um, I found someone who had done a bit of research and sort of tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Picked up that this would be uh, the story, and then when you sort of trace it back, it does make uh, sense that uh, that is what is being depicted here. But then I also went to uh, the uh, Camden Archive and I did a bit of digging, but I found a book which uh, the Church Council had released about their own history. They will tell you everything that you don't want to know in that book, but they won't tell you anything about the ornamentation or the frieze. So that's also why the name of the artist is uh, lost. But you see, with those ones that we've just discussed, it's fairly sort of um, straightforward to pick up a few of the uh, religious connotations. And uh, it makes sense also on the... uh, freeze with the name at the bottom you have uh, the scallop shell which will be uh, the pilgrimage sign of going to uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain and all those kind of things but if we have a look at the freeze over the doorway there that's sort of where all the religious connotations do get lost because you have those sea deities on it and also a ship and uh, during one of my um, you know, previous tours that I did uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone suggested that almost a ship looks a bit Viking on it. So, you you know, that's sort of where all the religious symbolism uh, gets lost. And, you know, merman, mermaids are not necessarily um, associated with any uh, religious uh, notions. So that's where a bit um, 
the ideas behind it do get lost. But especially on a tour, having a bit of mystery usually does help. And uh, so we can have a bit of a discussion about it and chat and try to figure out what is happening here. But I don't have a definite answer. But I do love the very stylized waves at the bottom and how they are sort of being depicted. The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news, with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist. We are going to move on from Tavistock Square. Uh, where's our next stop? Now we are going to have a look at the uh, Daimler Garage uh, next to uh, Russell Square Tube Station. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. By the way, if uh, you, uh, listener, happen to have any information on any of the uh, mysteries that crop up as a result of this conversation, do get in touch. I'm indebted to somebody who's been in touch. Uh, we had a bit of a mystery about the uh, Mother Black Cap from Withnail and I a few episodes ago, and someone was very kind and wrote in to let me know where it is. I'll uh, get back to you personally about that. Um, but I'm, I'm delighted. Do have a look in the comment sections of uh, the Londonist Out Loud episodes. If anybody also fancies solving a mystery for me, there's a beautiful building in Bethnal Green. I think it's called something like Frankel Trimmings, uh, but it's one of the most peculiar shapes of building I've ever seen. I might find that my guest today knows something about it, or I might not, but it's got a whiff of deco about it. I don't know about the building you're referencing, and I'll look it up, but always when it comes to building, a good tip is to have a look at... uh, Pazna, which uh, he was an architectural historian and he has released a series of uh, books in the 60s and 70s and they've been updated since. He's not always the biggest fan of Deco so when it does crop up it will usually only get a line but that's always a good place to start when uh, you're trying to do a bit of research on a building and it will give you basic information. Is uh, Pesner on online, or is it still hard copies? Uh, it will be hard copies. So there might be an online directory, but I guess if it's online, you would have to pay for it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of hard copies. Good. Well, they are very chunky, and you could kill someone with the book. Well, that's good. Utility, yeah, very important. Yeah, multifunctional. I think, I mean, to be honest, if we were just start to list the uh, objects with which you can kill someone, yeah. we'd be here all day. That's true, that's true. It's all, it's all about ingenuity, not materials. Yeah. But also, uh, before we go in the corner, do you know about the bust of Virginia Woolf there? No, I don't. Uh, oh right, okay. Well, so we're in the corner of uh, in the corner of uh, Tavistock Square here, and uh, somebody's left their head behind. <laughs> yes. But it wasn't chopped off. Uh, It's a bust of uh, Virginia Woolf. And it's a copy of an original which is standing uh, inside the National Portrait Gallery. I must admit, and I shouldn't say anything uh, negative about uh, Bloomsbury here, but I think they've a bit uh, botched this one up because the pedestal 
is a bit too disproportionate, I think, for uh, this culture. And, you know, she's such a prominent figure here in uh, Bloomsbury. You'd think she needed something a bit more extravagant. And I'm not saying necessarily over the top, but also she's hidden in this corner here and... Uh, sort of a bit lost. Well, for me, the unfortunate effect of this pedestal is because it takes her head up to where her head would probably be in real life. Um, so you, we go down as far as the shoulders with the bust and then it becomes this rectangular column. It looks as though the rest of her is in that column. I'm sort of reminded of uh, various sci-fi shows where a futuristic wheelchair is being used and you can just see the head of the person poking out of the top. That's a very nice description. I might have to steal that one for a future tour. But, you can have uh, that one on me. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're being so gracious to me and today. But, uh, yeah, no, it has that sort of monolithic quality to it. And uh, I'm not sure it's the best representation. And um, But there we go. It has a nice quote, though, on it. And it tells you that uh, while walking around Tavistock Square, she got the idea for To the Lighthouse. We're off to the Bank of England next, and what a great guest I had to show me around, the new person in charge of the museum there, Anna Spender. <laughs> Just uh, as a bit of a tangent, we had, uh, because I think we're going to be heading towards some currency examples at, at some point here, and we had some guys on the show a few weeks ago who have set up their own currency in Brixton, and I know there are other initiatives like that around the country, in Bristol and so forth. And reading up on some of the history here, I was looking at which institutions are and are not allowed to issue currency. Could you give us an overview of that? side of things? Um, Yes, well the the Bank of England has issued banknotes in this country since it was founded in 1694. So now at that point these were sort of promissory notes based on the investment that individuals had made? They were um, effectively IOUs um, for depositing your gold with the goldsmiths. Um, Handwritten notes. Sorry, you were handing gold in? Yes, so it's, it's effectively a receipt, I, I suppose, if you, if you like to think of it that way, um, which you'd hand back to get your gold back. Um, so the, the country's in crisis, presumably under threat. I think the French were involved. Why was it only gold that they were interested in, in particular, not, not other precious metals or precious stuff? Yeah, so gold, I believe was used for coinage and that sort of thing and it it was what you used to purchase items. We'll see shortly how the bank got its its famous nickname the old lady of Threadneedle Street Um, and that was during the restriction period which at that time we were um, also under threat of invasion from France again and the Prime Minister at the time William Pitt um, wanted to restrict the public using gold to pay for things so that he had enough gold to pay for the war and it was at that time that the bank started issuing um, small denominations of banknotes, £1 notes, £2 notes, for the public to use. It was very unpopular. A lot of the public were used to paying with gold coins. Many of them couldn't read either, so they couldn't understand what the banknotes meant. And at this time, um, counterfeiting was rife. Um, It was very easy to copy a banknote. And at that time, this is at the end of the 18th century, I believe there were over 300 people that were executed for counterfeiting. So it was a serious crime at that time. But presumably the risk of counterfeiting was less of a a pressing danger than the risk of clipping. Yes. um, Now, the risk of clipping, I do know a little bit about that, but you are probably best to talk to the Royal Mint about that, who deal with all of our coinage. So we're more banknotes um, at the Bank of England. 
And a banknote at that time looked like what? Yes, let's go and see. So if we go through to the early years section of the museum, um, we'll be able to see a very important document belonging to the bank. The museum is organised in a sort of chronological order. So when you um, pass the section about uh, what the bank does today, uh, we have a small section about when the bank was founded in 1694. And here you will see the Royal Charter that was issued by William III announcing um, the um, founding of the Bank of England. Which is a, a poster-sized piece, uh, very ornately decorated around the edges with a, a picture, I suspect, of His Majesty in the top left. Very, very tiny writing. And essentially boiling down to what? Well, th- this is um, the official royal charter um, that supports the bank as the government's banker, effectively, um, and de- debt manager. And that's um, exactly what we do today. Its function hasn't changed. There's some fine distinctions. Normally, I would think about leaving this till later in the chronology of the development of the bank, but it might be worth separating these ideas now because I think it, at this point it, it wasn't a central bank or it wasn't a national bank. There's, there's some fine distinctions of terminology. I, I suppose at that time it it, it was a central bank. It's actually the Bank of England is actually the second oldest central bank in the world. I, I think the oldest central bank is the Swedish central bank. So effectively, it was the central bank of England. Next to the chart, you'll also see the um, subscription book that contains all of the names of the private investors to the original Bank of England together with the amount of money that they subscribed and there are 1,268 subscriptions. Uh, it was a very popular idea. I believe that people were promised um, an 8% return on their money for perpetuity. So it seemed like a, a good deal at the time. And as I say, um, the king himself um, even subscribed money towards this. A total of just over a million pounds at that time. Um, there are ordinary people in the subscription book as well. Um, there are bakers, chemists, um, uh, those sort of people as well. So it, it sort of covered all areas of society. Well, no, just Britannia over there. I'm not sure if there's anything to say. I just noticed uh, her, her figure starts appearing this early. Yes. Um, in relation to our currency? Absolutely. Um, and Britannia is um, a wonderful symbol for the Bank of England. Um, she's been on our banknotes since the beginning in 1694 um, and has been ever since. So she's a, a symbol of um, stability and strength and resilience, I suppose. She's, she's always been there. I was delighted to discover, just because it's one of those little historical curiosities that the monarch has by no means been on the banknotes for all that time. Uh, Absolutely. Um, The Queen has only been on our banknotes since 1960. Um, So relatively recently, I suppose. Um, And historical figures first appeared on banknotes in 1970. And even at that time, some of the older banknotes were still in circulation, the big, white, ornate banknotes were still in circulation so it's only relatively recently that we're we're seeing the currency that we're used to today and so to our final clip and it is far from being the most professional moment of the show this year but it's one of my favorites all through the recording in Rotherhithe with Claire Sexton a white Luton van had been carrying out deliveries in the area and he'd been struggling with the narrow Rotherhithe roads and Although we kept talking and you wouldn't know that anything was going on, uh, several times we had a close encounter with him. And 
whilst Claire's concern was for the uh, volume of the van interrupting the sound of the broadcast, I was becoming much more uh, concerned that we were going to be squashed flat by the guy. He made several fairly convincing attempts to run us over, and I could have been persuaded that he had a vendetta against us had it not been for the fact that by the time we left him, he'd managed to manoeuvre his van in between two bollards, front and back, and was rolling back and forth between the two of them, uh, knocking bits off his vehicle. Anyway, have a listen. Yeah, we've uh, we've been... seems like we've been fighting industrial noise. I, I think, you know, considering that we are in what was a very industrial area... Um, the sound, the soundtrack to this interview is. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say it's making the uh, the interview rather than annoying it. <laughs> is that what the doctor would have sounded like? Lots of men with strimmers. Not men with strimmers. Um, it would have been a very noisy um, area. You'd had a lot of men shouting uh, commands to each other. You would have had a lot of boat horns. I mean, the men that worked on the docks were stacking timber of great heights as well. And, and, and there's an art to how you stack timber so that it doesn't fall off. It's not just putting planks of wood on top of each other. Um, you have to stack it so that particular lengths um, together um, and particular, I imagine, shapes are together as well. So it's not, it's not an easy job to do. And they would have carried huge planks of wood on their um, shoulders that's why they had the caps that had um, like a little beaver towel at the back um, to protect their um, their shoulders but they would have been covered in splinters and the guys that worked on the sugar um, a lot of the time they got sugar in their shoes and so it would have rubbed against their feet so um, we think about working on the ducks now you see call the midwife and and programs like that and it's quite a, a glorified portrayal but you know these were very hard hard jobs and the reason I've stopped here is because um there's this was a school uh, a free school uh, many many years ago and there's a boy and girl the boys on the left and the girls on the right and my granddad told my mum and my mum told me that these two swap so the boy and the girl swap places uh, we should we should clarify what we're talking about uh, which is a a tall slender building and on plinths about midway up it are kids dressed in what looks to me like uh, late 1700s mm. uh, attire, very traditional look. Yeah, um, and so the folk tale is that they swap. So the girl goes to the left and the boy goes to the right. Now, as a child, that terrified me. As an adult, I still find it very difficult to look at it because that, that thing of... <laughs> it's quite scary. And then you have... Um, the grave that's over here which is uh, supposed to be another folk tale of the uh, community is that it's the grave of a witch who gave birth to three children with pig's heads and if you run around saying Rachel, Rachel, Rachel she rises. We're in St Mary's Churchyard uh, yeah. if you want to know where to avoid doing exactly that. Well these are all, all stories that I heard as, as a child um, and it terrified me and as an adult I pretend to be brave but the the two school children are definitely i I seriously still can't look at them (laughs) Uh, this would appear to be the uh, most spiritually dangerous place in rotherhide in between these two things let's move around st mary's uh, church 
here. There's some interesting memorials going on. Uh, I know that one of these belongs to a prince who was, I think, plucked from a tropical island somewhere and uh, finished his time here in Rotherhithe. Yeah, so Prince Labu was sailing through Rotherhithe and he got, I think it was typhoid or scarlet fever, um, and sadly died. And then he is buried in the um, churchyard and there is a plaque to him on, in, the ch- in the church and um, his family do come over and visit, I think it's once a year um, so Rotherhithe has a lot of links to not only history within its own backyard as such but it does have a lot of history in terms of the history of progress and of world and historical events we have the Mayflower which is where the Pilgrim Fathers set sail from you have the ship and building businesses around here dating back to the 16th century Rotherhive has played a part a, a big part in world history let me ask though as we've walked along it's obvious that some of the buildings here are a lot newer and for the most part they look like lowish apartment blocks um, and you get the general air of gentrification going on around here as, as with most of the Docklands area I guess you said you've been for five generations part of this area what about the newcomers do they participate do they get involved in the deeper history of the area I think that we we've seen we're seeing in the society that we have a lot of new members as the chair of the society I actively promote that actually the society is for people who want to celebrate their own history because they've they've lived in the in the community for some of some of our members for generations but it's important that it's also for members who want to learn about the area that they've just moved into or that they've been here for a long time and that they help us to celebrate the community as well and also I think it's healthy because they will bring ideas of the history that they would like to know about so you know some of some of the stuff we may not i say we as as a committee or um might not necessarily think oh, our members would like to know that but when we have new members that come in it's quite exciting because they will bring a different energy what sort of thing do they typically plump for well i think i think at the moment because we have our program is set uh we've just done our program for the year um our programme runs from January to December so we're in the process of um, booking new speakers Um, and so we will be asking them what they want to um, what they want to know about um, sorry there's just a van (laughs) driving past that's totally thrown me a little bit just because I'm conscious of the sound Um, so we will be asking our members what they would like to um, hear and learn about you are throwing aren't you yeah <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want to take it's, I think he's just I think he's determined to track us I think that's what <laughs> I think I think it is testament we are we are walking down one of the oldest cobbled streets in London I think um, and so <laughs> I congratulate drivers for driving slowly but not when we're recording <laughs> it is remarkable really that anybody can get around this corner actually yeah. uh, that's not interesting to the listener it's <laughs> just something I noticed uh, we're coming past the have, um, uh, the rather high picture research library in Sands Films studio yeah so this is I mean they have a beautiful collection of photos and records um, of Rotherhive in there and there's, there's lots and lots of pictures of the docks and of the houses 
and of some of the um, trades that people would have done in this area. So if you are interested um, in... And, and they have um, a library uh, that goes wider um, than that as well. And uh, so it's all specified. You can look at a trade, you can look at costumes or clothes um, of, of a particular era. goes the van again I'm, I'm guessing he's now going to stop right in front of he's doing it again yeah now he's reversing is he toying with us maybe maybe okay so he's now very slowly reversing in front of us now what's he going to do he's coming back around he's, he's almost on us I know the poor listener the poor listener is now in having to listen to our commentary on a van. He's now going to take out a bollard. Oh, I think we need to get out of here. This is actually quite dangerous. <laughs> do you think if we go and uh, hide in another street, he's going to come and find us? Yes, I do. I'm starting to think. I'm starting to think that any noisy equipment is going to find us. He's just—he's hit the bollard. Fine. A small crowd has instantly gathered. Oh, he's taking his light out. He's taking his light out. Carnage in Rotherhithe. <laughs> this is grimly fascinating. Watching a man very carefully and gradually destroy his own vehicle. Yeah. We have just. We, did, we didn't help, by the way. We just, like, did their much. Well, I, I felt it was personal. I was pretty sure that was a, a clumsy assassination attempt. And that is it. That is 2015 on London Is Out Loud. Done. But don't worry, in just a few days' time, there'll be the first episode of 2016. Until then, have a great time and a very positive start to the new year. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.